David, great to catch up. I've got to say, after all these years, because it's actually been a long time now, thanks to you going off to the States and doing what you're doing there. So yeah. tell us about your life there. America, life in America, living there, the family, and yeah. whom you work now. So um, we've been here, what, 21 years or something? And we, we thought we'd come here for five to see what it's like. And then we haven't left, you know, just immerse ourselves in the culture. And we have family now, and we live in Indianapolis. Which, is, which has got seasons and snow and all those other wonderful things. And, uh, yeah, I work for Porsche now uh, doing GT3 and GT4 performance support. Uh, I work from home, which is great, and I just travel to the events. I did 28 events this year and giving people advice and answering questions about the car because we had a new car for this year, new GT3 car. Uh, so there were lots of... Uh, there's a lot of learning to take place on the part of the customers, but how do you best use the car? And I, we've got some new teams this year as well. So they're new to the car. So more people who need a bit of guidance. And that's what I do. I use all the experience I've managed to garner over the last 40 odd years to try and help out the customers. I wonder how many of them know that they're talking to the race engineer that won world championships and Grand Prix with, Williams and has that illustrious background. I don't know. I, I certainly don't make a point of saying anything about it. They probably wouldn't understand anyway. They probably wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't know the names of the drivers. It was so long ago, you know. I mean, did, did anybody ever know who engineered Fangio's car in the 1980s? Probably not. I don't think he had a race engineer as such, DB. Probably not. No. no. We'll get onto that in a minute, actually, the changing world of the race engineer. But before we do, you just touched upon the number of races you went to. Of course, that's nothing like as dire as doing that number of races from Europe, right? Traveling in the States inland, as it were, is not that difficult and relatively seamless. It's relatively simple. I mean, I try to drive to as many as possible because, you know, having done it as long as I have, I'm just about over being in airports and eating airport food. So I drive to probably a third, quarter, nice. quarter to a third of the events. And the rest of them are fairly simple, short flights. So it's not, I Presumably mean, the furthest I go is California. In a GT3 touring or something like that, right? Yeah, in, in my truck, actually. Yeah, <laughs> truck. I drive around in a very good, very large diesel truck. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So, David Brown with Porsche after all these years. So, let's go back then, David, to when did you actually join Williams? It's a, you know, I don't actually know. Uh, February 81. Wow. Yeah. Right from the start almost, eh? Carlos Croyton, Alan Jones. Well, the first time I met you was when you and Carlos walked into the drawing office where I was scratching away at my drawing board and sat down on the floor waiting to talk to Patrick. And you sat down there and said, hello. And I went, oh, around the corner of my drawing board. Went, oh, Carlos Croyton. <laughs> Well, you didn't say, oh, there's Peter Windsor. You thought there's Carlos Reutemann, right? I'm afraid not, Peter. Oh, okay. You did introduce yourself. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> I think at the time, well, it probably wasn't then, but but Carlos was very keen on having um, having a Tyrrell, Jackie Stewart-shaped gear lever knob on the 07. Oh, right. Slightly leaning forward curved one remember just fitting oh, the palm beautifully rather than the upright one that aj had yeah maybe it was that I, it was maybe after a year of not having that in 1980 I possibly would have been that wanting to go where's the drawing office i need to find a man who'll build this for me 
Yeah. Something like that. There weren't many of us. There was Neil Oatley and myself. And I think at that point, John Piper was maybe doing a bit of Metro stuff. I'm not quite sure. Probably and was. Tony Gillard, he used to do two or three days a week. Yep. And then Frank, Durney and Patrick. And we all used to draw bits. And I, you know, when you look at the quality of the cars then, and the engineering was superb even then, that, obviously Patrick at the head of it all, but the team below him uh, and, and Patrick, the quality of the engineering at Williams was outstanding relative to the opposition at the time, whether it be Ligier, Lotus, Ferrari, it was at another level then. And, and that's what, certainly I know that's what attracted Carlos to Williams and, um, you pro I don't know how aware of that you were because what could you relate it to other than high standards that you were working to with Patrick, I guess? Yeah, that's it. I mean, I spent 15 years there, so I, I was just straight into the culture. I mean, mm. I know that quality and thought and responsibility were really big things, and that's, that's what we, yeah, we were driven from above. Patrick set the example and we followed. When did you start going to races as a race engineer? Uh, I, my first race was the South African Grand Prix 85. Uh, on, on Nigel's which, car? Which we won, yes, yeah. which had nothing to do with me at all. Uh, <laughs> but I was but I was present and I was making notes. But by the, at that point, Nigel knew what he wanted. He'd come in and say, needs a bit more front wing, David. Okay. Ken, a bit more front wing, please. Off we go. <laughs> you know, it was a bit like that. But um, it was okay. Did you go to Adelaide that year? Yep. Yeah. And he got the pole, but then Keki won the race. Yeah, the uh, crown wheel failed off the start and knocked a tooth off it. He could. He just said he just couldn't see enough to drive the car. The car was vibrating so much because it only had, you know, was a loose tooth running around inside the gearbox. And then, and then came the eleven and the eleven B, which looking back now and this is not just me saying this, but a lot of people are saying, wow, that was the golden era of Formula One. You had P.K. Prost, Senna, Mansell, and you had these amazing cars, 1,000 horsepower plus, going through these wide Goodyears at the back and fairly simple basic cars, but again, beautifully engineered, but serious race cars. Mm -hmm. eh? Memories, yeah. thoughts on that period? Yeah, so in, that, so in 86, I looked after the spare or spare cars, depending on what we were, because we had a, an active car, I think, at the end of it. Uh, no, that was 18... 87, yeah. Huh? 87, we had the active car at the end of the year. So, yeah, I was looking after the spare car. So I was doing, doing the run sheets for both cars. So Frank Durney ran Nelson, Patrick ran Nigel, and I helped out. And it was a, it was a from, from, from a personal point of view, it was a great training time. Mm. for me because uh, you know i wasn't able to screw it up too badly uh but i was there learning and soaking it all up so that, that worked really well and i thoroughly enjoyed that and it was a great car and uh yeah we had a lot of good results well it was and it was a great period because it was honda as honda can really do formula one as well I mean, massive power yeah. improvements every race, probably. Some of them uncalled for, like the lighter manifolds at Monaco that unexpectedly cracked in the race, went down uh, again. That was 87, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I remember banging on the engine covering. 
shouting at Alan <laughs> Chalice. Yeah. I mean, that was a race. That was a Monaco win. That was first Monaco win for, for Nigel that got away from him. One of yeah, my fondest memories of 87, actually, is the French Grand Prix after about five laps when Nigel was starting to sing into the radio. I, I, I can't remember what he was singing. It was something like Daisy, Daisy, or something like that. He was he was singing nursery rhymes. Yeah. yeah. It, it was Ricard, of course. I kept thinking yeah, it was Ricard. Of course, it was and Ricard. Goto yeah, I remember San. it well. Is it Goto-san? I think it was Goto-san, or maybe it may have been a cheetah, but I think it was Goto said, Brown-san, Brown-san, what is Nigel saying? <laughs> you said, oh, he's singing nursery rhymes. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> next question. <laughs> Uh, there was another incident, wasn't there, where where Nigel said, "I just want to, I just want to wake up, call about twenty laps into the race or something like that." And then about fifteen laps, I think it was Hareth, about fifteen laps into the race, he said, "Oh, he said I didn't wake it up yet, David." I said, "Oh, I didn't wake you up." I, hey, yes, you did. The mirror just came off, hit me in the side of the helmet. And I think that was uh, that was Hareth. So he was quite happy. Just there was none of this sort of race engineers coaching you around every corner business. It was it was just um, they just set sail, even sort of for a, a lot of the tire deg judgment and all that sort of stuff. Are we going to change tires? Are we not going to change tires? Where was it? It was Mexico, wasn't it? That Nelson came in after eight laps. Berger yeah. won the race because he was running Pirellis. Yeah, in the Benetton. Well, I'm not sure if it was eighty six or eighty seven. I've got the suspicion it's eighty six. Yeah, and that was just Nelson going, ha, huh, this isn't working, and pitted after eight laps. It was a bit like that. And you hear the engineers today, and I often cringe when I hear them say, and I think, what would, how would Nigel react to what this engineer has just said to his oh. driver? It's things like, you know, come on, pick up the pace a bit, or, you know, you, you, can, you, can you get the power on a bit sooner through turn six on the apex there? I mean, it doesn't even bear thinking what Nigel would have oh, said to them. Would not have been great. There would have been offers for, for the, the person on the other end of the microphone to take the, take the steering wheel and do it the bloody selves. I think. Or, or the race engineer for Charles Leclerc. This is uh, Charles. Question. Option A, we have possibility of degradation in five laps. <laughs> this may be a problem. Or option B, we can continue as we are. Thoughts? Question. I mean, it would have been a short answer. <laughs> And he That's didn't right. like it, actually, when he actually didn't really like talking much, did he, on the radio at all? And if you spoke to him at the wrong yeah. moment of the lap, it, he, you'd know about it too, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. That's right. Because in the uh, FW12, the fuel meter on the dash, so the driver was asked to read the fuel meter during the race. And, it, and I would have to remind Nigel to do that as he crossed the start-finish line. There were times when he didn't really want to answer that question, and I got an answer which was not four digits off the meter. <laughs> Um, but it was fine. I, Nobody took offence. It wasn't taken personally. No, it was just, and I it think, was just part of yeah. doing that. You know? and, and because, and I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth here, but because you and I and a few others kind of understood Nigel and the way he was, we knew that all this was actually because he was just so confident in what he was doing and he was so good at what he was doing. He could actually have all these other things around that psyched out other people, other drivers, other engineers perhaps even, but we knew what he was really doing, and this guy was seriously quick. And I think the more we have the hindsight, we realise how good he was. Mm. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, he didn't need babying at all. It would um, 
It would just be a distraction to him. He just wanted to get on with it. Hence the singing, which is just yeah. a distraction, right? It's all you're doing is divert, diverting your attention away from your, what you're trying to do against what's going on in your head. Yeah. So, and yeah. can I also suggest, David, and obviously feel free to disagree, but also he had a he had the sort of what I would call a Michael-like talent, possibly Max today and for sure Lewis as well, of when he would say something like a bit more front wing or less tire pressure on the left front or whatever it was, some something that he just wanted and didn't want to have any discussion about, it was because he he knew what he could do with the car given any shortcomings that he was going to have to drive around, he knew exactly what he needed in order to get the lap done as distinct yeah. from just describing what the car was doing and sort of, you know, making lots of changes, just trying to make it better to drive. Right. He knew precisely yeah. what yeah. Nigel Mansell needed to do the lap. I think it's because he, he was from a generation. It was a bit of an overlap really. I mean, of, of that, that generation of drivers were an overlap from where the driver really engineered the car into where the you know there was so much technology that the, the technicians and the engineers had to really drive forward the setup and so he'd come from a generation where at a time where the driver would have to come in and say look i need a softer front on your roll bar and that's it and not a, like four weeks of discussion about what it's going to do to the roll balance mm. and the angle of the wing and blah 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 all that was sort of built into the answer and so you know if you wanted a bit more front roll stiffness or less front roll stiffness then that was probably going to be the right thing. And then, as you say, he would accommodate that and just use it to his advantage. Yeah, and I think that's the punchline, isn't it? He would then go quicker as distinct from make the car easier to drive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he wasn't was the... interested in making the car easier to drive at all. No. It's just all about pace, all about winning. And I think, David, also you dovetailed really well with Nigel because you didn't actually say that much, did you? You just got on with it. And, and you're by nature, you're relatively retiring i think relatively quiet and i think nigel loves that about you that amidst all the other stuff maybe the patrick head stuff and and a lot of other stuff in Formula one there was a there was a circle of calm around his car yeah i think everybody benefited from that and it, it is the right way of doing it but you need the confidence running in both directions to work like that yeah once you have the confidence and you have the way, the, the ability to read between the lines or just exchange two words and there be several paragraphs of information in those two words, then it, it worked really well. It's very efficient, quick. You get through a lot of stuff in a practice session or when you're testing. And, and that's you get the how chance it was to have tea at the end of the pit lane as well. Yeah, and that's exactly how it was with you and Nigel. So let's talk about that, the changing... I mean, the job that you did at Williams probably doesn't exist anymore right there are too many other engineers in the garage around the car no i think they're probably well there's probably a dozen people doing what the race engineers in in my day used to do but but i mean it was very much patrick's teaching as well is that you had to understand the whole car you know if you're going to stand next to it david and talk to the driver about what it's doing and instruct the mechanics as to what to do with it best you understand what's going on and so there was a lot of that going on so not just the um, vehicle dynamic side of it or the aero side or whatever, but you know, all the systems the race engineer is expected to understand. You know, you've got a brake issue, David. Well, you need to know how the brake system works. You've got a cooling issue, you need to know how that works. All the various different systems of the car, whereas now I believe that there are specialists, innumerable specialists, mm. who deal with one particular aspect of the car, like you've got the left front disc bloke and the guy who does the cooling system, you know, which I can understand because of the complexities, but it just wasn't like that. 
mm. when I was doing it. And it, but it did mean that you were completely involved with everything that went on the car, which I thought, think was much more rewarding and much more interesting. Oh yeah, and you work relatively closely with Honda, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we used to, they used to in eighty, yeah, six eighty seven. Um, they had a workshop inside the factory, and they used to you know kit the engines there. And the guys used to live in Slough commute every now and again. John Alcon would drop a few on the roundabout at uh, in Oxford. <laughs> if you remember that one, they fell out the side of the truck. Yeah, yeah, Johnny Alcon, very much so. Yeah. There's a big thing these days about the track walk on a Thursday. I don't remember you and Nigel religiously doing track walks at every yeah. Grand Prix circuit at which you arrived. No, no, we didn't. I, I've, we've done a couple, but they, we, we used to drive, not walk. <laughs> and we did one. Uh, Nigel had a friend called Charles. He yeah, used to Charles Wagner. Yeah. Yes. And uh, we were in Mexico City. Uh, must have been 87. We've got this dodgy old golf. And Nigel says, well, you drive. So I'm driving around in this golf. And rule number one of driving a Formula One driver around the track, of course, is not to try and impress the Formula One driver with your prowess behind the wheel, because it's <laughs> never going to work. And so we go charging off down the road in this golf, and Charles in the back and Nigel and I in the front. And we do a lap, you know, nice and gently, because there are people still painting the curbs and putting up fence and stuff like this. And we get come out of the last corner. He says, I'll tell you what, Dave, he says, you go full throttle. I'll take the steering wheel and don't lift. And I'm like, okay. We knew each other well enough then that I didn't just stop and get out of the car. So we carried on. And we got to the first corner. And I and I lifted very slightly because I just, there was too much um, fear. And um, Nigel just flicked this golf sideways and we got to the corner. And, we, and the rest of the lap, you know, we sort of got through. And we, we came out of the penultimate corner before you got to what used to be the hairpin by the, the velodrome there. And... Nigel grabbed the handbrake and we'll go reasonably quickly for a golf. We were probably doing, I don't know, 70 or something like this. But, you know, with my reaction speed and the fact that I absolutely did not think this was going to happen, we ended up sideways on the grass on the left-hand side. And the people who had been painting the curbs were now climbing up the fence. And I could see these guys scrambling with their fingers up through this chain link fence as we're sliding sideways down there. And thankfully, it didn't roll and we drove back. But Nigel did offer to do another lap, and both Charles and I declined. We went into the pits. So we did do we did did the odd one, but they were very infrequent. Did you learn much about the circuit in the middle midst of all this? No, quite a lot about the golf. <laughs> David, and then then there was that old Judd active ride into passive, and Nigel obviously not very happy and going off to Ferrari. And you staying at Williams. And then it all came to light again with Renault engines and the 14 and the 14B, whole yeah. new era. But looking back now, I don't know how many people were at Williams in 1991, probably 120 odd, I would think, something like that. Maybe. I was going to guess 150, but yeah. Maybe, like yeah, that. it could be. Yeah. And together, they produced what remains the most technically advanced Grand Prix car of all time. Has to be. That's madness, isn't it? Really, completely crazy, isn't it? Really, when you consider yeah. how much went on. I mean, I always think of. I, I think Steve Wise designed the circuit boards, and the circuit boards were made by an outside company, but we made the enclosure. You know, every, everything all the way down to building the computer that ran the car was all done in house. 
so that you control the, the quality of it and the delivery times as well. That's great. There was a uh, John Sutton's got a lovely story of testing at Croissant-Tournois uh, yeah. in back end of 90 with the first seamless shift and Patrick recording it on a voice recorder, the sound of the gear changing, and then taking it back to Frank and saying, we've got to have this for, for 91. And everything was sort of compressed. A six-month progress was was compressed into six weeks. And there was mm. the the first paddle shift. Williams, based on a Sony to carry the gear lever around recorder. in the spares. At the beginning of this, when we first started, we still had the um, mount was actually built into the chassis for the gear lever and the gear rod to go in, but we never actually fitted it. But uh, mm. we had a backup just in case it all went horribly wrong. It worked pretty well, apart from the selecting two gear scenario, which we went through. You remember in Phoenix, we had all the gearboxes off the cars, and into Lagos, we raced to five gears. And because the car used to select two gears, John Sutton would know exactly which gears they were, but it would it would somehow manage to select, because of thermal expansion, it would, it would effectively select two gears. Of course, as soon as you select two gears of different ratios, it just goes bang. And so we tried in the um, in the warm-up uh, a five-speed gearbox, and uh, it worked fine. You know, it was fine. Nigel adapted immediately. I just, I just took the same top gear and just spread the gears out, and we agreed on what we were going to do. We ran it in the warm-up. It was fine. And Patrick came into the office at the back of the garage into Lagos and said, right, you know, Ricardo, choose your ratios for your five-speed gearbox. And Ricardo's like, oh, no, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, and we Nigel less off, looking at each other. And this Patrick was not kidding when he was suggesting that Ricardo did this, but he didn't receive the message, Ricardo. And there, was a, there were a couple of rounds of, no, no, you're going to do this. And, and no, no, I don't want to, before the message was transferred in forthright terms i think patrick was crimson he was so angry because he <laughs> we'd done this it was one of these things right we've done it we tested it it worked fine you know it was the one way we thought we were going to get through the race mm. and ricardo didn't get the message they were they were good times weren't they and there was that incident in canada in 91 which obviously was uh, unbelievably disappointing from your point of view and Nigel's but John Sutton's gone through that in detail and really it was not Nigel's fault at all if he'd I can't remember what the solution was now but I think it was that if he'd given it full throttle if he gave it full throttle he should have done he should have tried to give it no throttle or vice versa and anyway right. it would have picked up and he would have still made it but it wasn't his fault because at the time nobody knew how he should have reacted to what actually happened he didn't flick a switch off it was just he, got, he let oh. the revs get too low and and that was the that was the problem, and um, and a sort of self cutout came in. It was all to do with the shift strategy, wasn't it? It, mm. it? it was all to do with how the how high the blip was set. Yeah, and the blip was set as an offset compared to the RPM that last saw before you pulled the downshift. Yeah, and when he was coasting, because he was, because he'd started having dog to dog issues, so he was taking it really gently, and you know, shifting very late and very gently. Um, it confused the system and it just set a speed, a height for the blip, which was less than the idle speed, effectively switched it off. But it was it was it was solved with a, a line of code. 
That's all it was. But it was just something that never happened before. It just had to happen in the middle of a, or at the end of a race. There we are. Unbelievably irritating, but then made up for by some spectacular wins in 92. And that South African Grand Prix was unbelievable, wasn't it? I mean, oh. the margin that Nigel had at the, in that race that he didn't need to use at all, right? Wasn't there a, didn't we have a, a, um, a rule that you could only use it for so many laps because we were concerned yeah, was, about there was that ricardo used it so ricardo raced it for the entire race yeah well he had quite a lot of pressure from senna didn't he and and that's why he used it so much but nigel never yeah. used it yeah no i mean again because nigel had come from an era where the cars were 50 percent reliable during the races and most of it was in the hands of the driver to get it through the race and he always drove with, you know, one eye on everything that he could look after to try and get the car to the end of the race. Mm. Which puts the lie to the whole business of Nigel being a ham-fisted, over-aggressive driver with not much finesse, right? Yeah, it's just, just not true. Yeah, I never saw that. And I remember him saying to me several times, I don't know if it was the case with you, was that um, he didn't really need the traction control because he had it all on his right foot anyway. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And he's not far from true, right? I mean, he well, was... And I really think it's good. probably come on a bit since then. And, you know, I, and I work in, a, in an environment now where traction control is, you know, across all GT cars. But, of course, it's a different market, right? The people yeah. who are driving the GT cars that I work on are not you know, Mansells, Prosks, Senna's, PK's, right? They're yeah. just not like that. And so those guys can drive around these things because they have enough finesse, enough, enough feel to see what's going on. But mm. other drivers can't. Mm. Silverstone 92, that pole lap and the difference between him and Ricardo. Yeah, that was quite a good one. We had a bit of an incident in the truck afterwards. Did you hear about that? Um, so you I was know that so nice... getting the hire cars back to the factory so that I wouldn't get <laughs> an irate Frank Williams saying, why were they 10 minutes late? We, um, I think we did a lap and then Nigel wanted to go again. Patrick's like, oh, no, you don't need to. You're going to be on pole. And I just like, no, I've. I'm going to go again. I'm sure I can go faster. I just want to, I just want to go faster. Okay. And it, we went out and he did go faster, which is great. <laughs> we walked in. So we're Let's in the that. truck. There's myself. There was a certain amount of that going on, right? Um, we're in the truck. And Nigel and I are sitting there. And, and Ian Harrison is sitting in there, team manager as well. And Ricardo walks in. And he walked up to Nigel and stood in front of him and said, stand up. And I thought, oh, my goodness there's going to be an altercation here, right? So Nigel stood up and, and Ricardo grabbed him by the crutch. And he said, I just want to feel them. <laughs> I thought that was pretty bloody funny. It was. But how much of that lap was bravery and how much of it was Nigel's finesse and talent and self-belief? He had huge faith. At, at that point, he not only obviously had a lot of faith in his own ability, but it was separately with the active car, which is, I think, one of the issues that Ricardo had. He didn't really talk to the driver so much at the limit. And you really had to explore it to get the most out of it. And Nigel just could do it. And, and Ricardo at, at um, Silverstone just could not get anywhere near him just because of the faith you had to show in the car. And, and Nigel was willing to do that. Because there was a certain point on quick corners where there was an exponential amount of downforce if you got through it, right? That's right. If you keep the right heights in, in the right window, then you yeah. just have a better better downforce, more speed. Yeah. And that's where it came from. 
yeah. so he didn't want to lift. In Hungary, a joint pump failed on um, Nigel's car, and then it failed on Ricardo's car as well. And the failure mode was that eventually the car the car wouldn't hit the ground because it had packers in it to keep it off the ground, but the fluid will all end up in the front, not in the back. So the car would be power boating down the straight. And that's we were watching that happen. And eventually, you know, car doesn't work anymore. Funny, I was thinking it was due to the fact that after three weeks, the incredible rash on the arms and hands of Jimmy Jock Walter hadn't got any better, and they thought they'd better change the formula for the fuel. <laughs> it was nasty. It wasn't as bad as the turbo fuel, though. That was really wicked. This, the stuff that we used in um, 86 and 87, really nasty stuff. I remember we used to set the capacity on it's 210 or 220 litres. And Alan Chalice and myself would be beating on the side of the chassis trying to get all the bubbles out of the fuel tank and just putting the plastic balls in so it would help hold the maximum amount of fuel. And if you put your hand in, you'd pull it out and it'd be completely white, taking all the oil out of your skin. Oof. Yeah. Doesn't happen today. We have curfews today. We have unbelievable safety controls. We have high-vis jackets. We have everything. Everything's changed. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And how much better it all is. Are you saying that? Yeah, right. Yeah. I'm glad you laughed after that, David. Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. Times. And then, of course, you did have that 83, no, sorry, 93 season with Prost. Must have been an interesting yeah. change from Nigel. It was Prost. interesting. Brilliant drivers yeah. both, different in character, different in style, different in everything. Come from a different place. You know, Nigel had been with the team for a long time, so our culture would sort of... There was a culture surrounding about how things were done at Williams, and Nigel was part of that culture. And then in walks Alan, who's basically a McLaren driver. And, yeah, he had different ways of working, and so we had to adapt. You know, we had to adopt things that he would... Under, and talk about things in terms that he would understand, and then we would also... There were some things about the way he described what was going on that we needed him to discuss in our terms. And we got there, you know, over the testing period in the first few races. But interesting business. So Prost had been in the John Russell car and Nigel had stayed at Williams in the David Brown car. How would that 93 championship have gone, do you think? Oh, it would have been, uh, would have been, it certainly would not have been a triumph of engineering that decided who won the championship <laughs> that way. The engineering was going to be, if you see what I mean, it would have been... Uh, I don't think it would have been as bad as the Nelson-Nigel thing, but it would have turned into something like that. It would have been a bit ugly, I think. It would have been a bit like the Prost-Senna thing, actually, wouldn't it? In yeah, yeah, it could well have been. Yeah, could well it have It would been. have been close. My money is on Nigel, actually. I think he would have done it, but, you know. Oh, I think so, too. But, it, but it, the thing is, he's got the strength of character to not get over-phased by all the crap that's going on around him. Yeah, yeah. So, David, there we are. Anything else we should talk about, you think? I mean, the McLaren period for you was a little bit frustrating, I would imagine. Uh, yes, I did one year on uh, David's car, but I enjoyed running the 3000 team. That was interesting because I've never yeah, done anything like that. Yeah, that's what I mean, that. yeah. yeah. That, was quite, that was quite fun, actually, because I was just... I had a phone and I'd gone to some IndyCar races um, as a guest of Mercedes, uh, and then I'd done... Uh, some Formula 3000 races as well, and all to sort of find out what we were going to do with a, as a junior team, mainly for Nick Heifel to drive. Mm. And I came back from my last trip, you know, two-thirds of the way through the year, 
And Ron said, okay, so what do you think we should do, David? And I said, well, I think we should do IndyCar because I quite fancy doing IndyCar. He said, good, let's do Formula 3000. <laughs> I'll get in. And um, so I sat there for a bit. And Ron, I don't know if you've how much time you've spent talking to Ron, but Ron would take phone calls in the middle of a you know sort of fairly informal meeting like he and I were having. And he would just take this phone call and and smile at you while he was taking the phone call, put the phone, phone down and carry on having a conversation. So the phone had gone off and he's having this conversation with somebody else. And I was still sitting there because we hadn't decided what the hell we were going to do. We we're just going to go and do Formula 3000. He put the phone down, looked at me and said, well, you're not going to win anything sitting there. Go, go and do it. And so I picked up the phone and ordered some Formula 3000 cars. I mean, I just had a phone and a desk. Excellent. It was fascinating just building it from the ground up. Mm. Great to talk to you and great to catch up. And so pleased that you're doing this phase of your life now. I imagine you're finding it satisfying from an engineering point of view and satisfying from a living in America, enjoying motorsport point of view, correct? I mean, all the bits are coming together. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually, I really enjoy what I do. It's, it, it's sometimes, um, I, it's, I'm, not, I'm not competing personally, which is not, which is unusual for me because I've spent all my professional life, you know, competing against people because mm. that's what you do when you're racing, right? It's competition. And um, so I'm not personally competing for the first time for you know 40 years or whatever it is but i'm able to enjoy watching other people compete on my behalf and winning stuff which is what i want to do i want to be on a winning team it couldn't be with a better team company than porsche which has enormous american connections as well if you look at the history of porsche going back to dan gurney winning porsche's first formula one race mark donahue all the porsche development he did with Roger Penske, a uh, huge feel for Porsche throughout America. I would imagine when you come to town, when the race is on and it's all happening, I imagine it's a brilliant atmosphere. Yeah, great. And there's, you know, everybody wants to own a Porsche. And uh, if you say sports car to people, they think of Porsche. They really do. So many people, like my dentist, you know, who unfortunately drives a Corvette but wants to own a Porsche. <laughs> but at least he's got the right idea because he wants well, to. Well, I'd like a, a GT3 Touring, please, David. Yeah. Yeah, don't know. I can give you a sort of share in my Ram truck, but it's about as far as it goes, really. <laughs>